This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, I'm Natasha Heller from New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be speaking with Ari Heinrich. His new book, Chinese Surplus, Biopolitical Aesthetics and the Medically Commodified Body, is a fascinating study of representations of the Chinese body in the context of biotechnology. How are bodies reproduced, broken apart, and circulated? And how do the representations of these processes help us understand transnational biopolitics? Heinrich takes up these questions and others in this pathbreaking work, one that will change how readers think about the body in contemporary art and media. Welcome, Ari. It's great to have you here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I'm wondering if you could start by telling us what you drew you to the study of modern Chinese literature. I uh, sort of stumbled into Chinese literature uh, on, in, a, in a general sense, just because I grew up in a rural upstate New York uh, without a lot of exposure to, uh, to people from different places and also um, without uh, a lot of access to information. So I got very curious about about the world and had some friends um, whose backgrounds suggested a relationship to China. And I think as I, as I grew up and tried to get out of there as fast as possible, I started to look for schools that would offer Chinese as, uh, instead of the, the Spanish or French or German that I was able to study before that. So it, I kind of just uh, started following my nose. I started with the language and then... Um, Partway through college, I lived in Taiwan in a sum- for a summer just to teach English and see what it was like. And um, I felt so embarrassed not to be able to speak Chinese that I started studying it more seriously. I think it was so basically I'm in Chinese studies because I was embarrassed not to speak the language. Can you I mean, can you give us a little bit of background on sort of your academic trajectory, uh, maybe working up to how you decided on this particular research topic? Yes. Um, well, so originally, when I when I went to college, uh, after growing up in upstate New York, the, my, the school I went to was Swarthmore, a small liberal arts college outside Philadelphia. And um, although I was interested in Chinese, at first I was an English major, and I did pretty much everything that you would do to be an English major, except maybe one Shakespeare class that I'd already, you know, I'd already taken in high school. And um, so I, I, I had an interest in, my, in the English literature side of things in medical history then. And I was, from a feminist perspective, I was interested in why it was that um, conditions like hysteria were connected to gender. And I started to research that and ask mm-hmm. questions about what was the relationship of somatic expressions of illness to um to ways that medicine and illness were described in medical texts, to science and so forth. And that was, it was around the time that I was thinking about those things uh, in a class on women and literature in English that I also read um, a book that converts many people to Chinese studies officially, which is um, The Dream of the Red Chamber or A Story of the Stone. And I I read um, that beautiful translation by David Hawkes. It's so long and luscious and basically just fell in love with the book. And I thought that... uh, 
without knowing any better, I thought that that meant that all of Chinese literature was like that. And that, therefore that I had to stop everything and start learning how to read it in the original language uh, better. And so when I got to that book, part of what attracted me to it on, uh, on a personal level was also that the main character, one of the main characters in Dai um, also has a lot of somatic expression of anxiety in her illnesses and uh, wound up writing my undergraduate thesis on uh, on how those illnesses were described and researching what medical history might have had to say about it from both Chinese and other perspectives. And that's when I started to really get interested in the science side of things and uh, in what counts as tuberculosis and what doesn't and who gets to decide what are the classic symptoms of a given condition and which and colonially speaking, which uh, conditions actually become the diagnostic norm or standard and which ones become some kind of medicinal other. Um, so it was sort of through that book that I entered both Chinese literature and history of science and medicine and then started to expand outward from there uh, as an undergrad. Um, I kept studying those things through grad school. And in grad school, I started out uh, at Harvard and wound up, uh, after the master's, I wound up transferring to Berkeley to work with uh, Lydia Leo, uh, who's had a great deal of influence uh, on my work. And um, and especially in this latest book, I've, I, at a certain point, I realized I was citing at least four of her works and um, starting to, I mean, 20 years after being her graduate student, starting to think about <laughs> what kind of deep structural connections there were between my thinking and and things that she's been working on for many years. Um, but yeah, so in grad school, in grad school, I got to explore all of this a little bit more deeply, of course. And uh, the product of my dissertation as a book was the first book, which was on uh, medical illustration and uh, also um, some illustrations of medicine and literature as well as art, and uh, also um, connections cross-culturally uh, between China and Western understandings of what disease was. So a lot of the roots of the first book actually were laid down in the research for the, um, a lot of the roots for the research for this, for this latest book were laid down in the, in the, in the work I did on the first book. And I, I see them kind of as a sequel to each other. Yeah, so yeah, it's a really fascinating area of study. And it, it seems to me that this is a really, uh, this interested interest in the body and the sort of medicine is uh over the course of your career i th i think has really grown um so when you turning to the book itself uh you began by talking about in the you know the first pages of the book um you introduce considerations of aesthetic practice and representations um to biopolitics uh, which has been defined as a fusion of modern life sciences and political economics uh, why is adding this aesthetic dimension really important I'm really glad you asked that because sometimes I think that that is actually one of the, the central questions of the book, even as it enters into very specific case studies of, of uh, illustrations, of literature, of contemporary art, of cinema and popular science. Actually, one of the one, something that's very important to me, very close to home as someone in the humanities department is the problem of the humanities uh versus this being constructed as something in contrast to the sciences um, and STEM courses uh, and, and, and courses of study. In the contemporary university, um, I don't see the humanities and sciences as opposites, even if the administration does. And one of the things that, I, uh, one of my hopes um, in terms of 
my career as a whole is to kind kind of create the conditions for a for a handshake to occur between medical humanities and medical sciences. Um, I don't see a lot. I think both sides have to reach out more. Um, and since I'm not trained in the sciences specifically, um, the book's kind of my effort to reach out from the humanities side and, and, and engage in a discussion about, uh, essentially, about hard sciences. So the aesthetics component is the bridge. Uh, I think uh, typically, for example, in, in medicine, illustrations are seen in a purely functional way. In other words, the text and the science itself is the most important thing, and any illustrations you see serve primarily to support those, uh, those other concerns. They're not primary and they're not considered necessarily primary resources unless, uh, for example, they're providing evidence of a, a disease that couldn't otherwise be seen by the naked eye. Um, so a, a very utilitarian, very functional approach to illustration. Um, but one of the things that I think humanities can bring to the study of sciences is a deeper appreciation of how uh, the way a thing is presented, how it looks or how it sounds or feels um, or acts on the senses, a greater appreciation of how those things can actually contribute to the meaning uh, of the scientific object in question. And so I, I think some, let's, I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a classic example, um, but in, mm, if we want to understand uh, how, mm, how, for example, race might function in the interpretation of an image, then treating the image as purely objective Really won't give you the information that you need, but giving it a historical context and analyzing it as a work, for example, of visual cultural history can bring so much information to the table. So my hope would be in, a, in an ideal world that I'm actually uh, um, creating the means for allowing images to be much more useful to science than, than they have been. It's as if there's a whole realm of information, the realm that is aesthetics, that has been discounted in science because it doesn't have, it's not evidence-based. And yet it's information that's, that can be applied in practical ways. So I think uh, in my book, I'm particularly interested in ways that we construct understandings of race and humanity and the ways that aesthetic objects like artworks or uh, popular science exhibits can contribute to uh, misunderstandings about race and culture in the name of science. It's things like that that I think are, are um, would hopefully be useful in a study like mine in the end. So uh, I, I'll probably get into it later too, but the, you know, when we look at the Body Worlds exhibits, the plasmated human cadavers, they're often presented uh, as scientific right. objects, as anatomical phenomena, uh, that because they are raw humanity, they, they couldn't possibly bear the burden of, uh, for example, racism or colonial histories, etc. But in fact, they... Um, a lot of the conditions of viewing those exhibits are deeply inflected by uh, by colonial uh, conditions. And without knowing those things, you just won't get a, as deep an understanding of the exhibits as you otherwise would. Thank you. That's, I think, really useful context for understanding how the book came together. And so in chapter one, you began with Frankenstein in China. Um, and in particular, th there's a very interesting connection with automatons. Can you tell us about this and how these ideas shaped discourses about bodies and politics in modern China? Uh, yes, definitely. The Frankenstein chapter was a lot of fun <laughs> to write because it kind of came out 
it came out almost being like a, a mystery, <laughs> as a mystery with a solution, one of those rare instances, one of those rare cases in history where you you follow a trail and actually find a, a solution to a puzzle. And in that case, the puzzle had to do with um, what people were thinking, and specifically what Chinese diplomats were thinking about the human body and the body as nation uh, at the turn of the 20th century, at a really important time historically. And one of the things that's harder, really hard to do, whether you're in psychology or in sciences or neurosciences or humanities, it's, it's almost impossible ever to know or even speculate what someone feels about something. What is the reaction of an audience to a film? Or so it's a classically difficult thing to measure. Or what is the reaction of someone to a work of art? Um, and in the case of the Frankenstein chapter, I felt like I could make a strong case for extrapolating what some of these, uh, some of the reactions to a very powerful automaton exhibit in London at the turn of that century might have been. And it turns out, and luckily for me in writing the book, it turned out to have a lot to do with the body as a political object. And um, I didn't set out to, I didn't know at first that there would be such an intimate connection. I started off with a very general interest in Frankenstein as an unusual body and just a curiosity of how it was translated and when into Chinese. And when I started researching that question, I discovered that several other scholars had also been interested in the question that none of us could actually figure out what, where the first translation was, what happened. Like, seems like the earliest one we could identify happened in, I think, 1980. And there may be earlier ones, but none of us has uncovered it. And yet the word Frankenstein existed in Chinese uh, since at least the turn of that 20th century when Yang Titao referred to it uh, and also and others. And so I started, like these other scholars, I started digging deeper to see if I could figure out what the roots were. And some of those, uh, some of the works that they did were outstanding, like that, just that incredible detail-oriented philology that you, I just have the utmost admiration for because it's so much work to trace every reference from every newspaper to um, understanding you know, the multiple translations of things. Uh, so they did a lot of most, pretty much most of the work. And then I kind of got lucky at a certain point because the, um, the reference that Liang Qichao made to Frankenstein, which was a book that appears to have not been translated for another 80 years, turns out to be referring to something really specific. Um, and he made a statement about uh, that was translated later as referring to China as a sleeping lion known as Frankenstein. And it's just kind of a mystery. Like, what are all these things? What are all these things doing in the same sentence? And it turns out that, um, kind of like by a game of telephone, uh, he was referring to uh, an automaton tiger called Tipu's Tiger, that's been one of the most popular exhibits through history uh, in um, uh, in the, in the museum in in London. And uh, so it was pretty exciting to track that down and to track down references to that exhibit uh, and to the reference, uh, the, the way of understanding China as a sleeping lion and as a Frankenstein to various visitors from China to London. And then to understand that it was a very unique moment in history as well, and a moment when, uh, on one hand, the idea of an anatomical body had only just, essentially in historical terms, only just been translated uh, into Chinese so that was still fresh. But at the same time, post-industrial revolution, there was also a transition going on in understandings of the body elsewhere uh, that, that led to people understanding the body as a machine, something that functioned as a machine, um, the, part, the sum of its parts. So for Chinese diplomats in London at the time to look at an, an, um, 
this giant automaton of a tiger. They might have seen it. Again, it's impossible to know what anybody thinks, but um, we can sort of understand what it might have been like to look at a body that's composed of these machine-like parts and that uh, that suggests something about uh, the integrity of the body, even as the idea of a, uh, a physical body is new. Or if I'm not being clear, I mean... Uh, that both the idea of the body as a concrete, organic, physical object united together in one whole, in, according to Western medical traditions, and the idea of a body as a machine were both relatively new concepts in, uh, to, to people who understood body in more traditional ways or traditional Chinese medical ways, which were very diverse to begin with. So um, the other interesting thing about that exhibit is that it what it depicts for anyone who hasn't seen it is a life-size tiger mauling a british soldier and it's a british soldier so that um dressed in red and wailing if you turn a crank the uh, the the tiger there's this wailing sound and it flashes out at the uh, at the soldier and it turns out that the exhibit itself was loot acquired from a a sultan in India who had been conquered and uh, was sort of the product of this colonial engagement and a kind of item of revenge so proudly displayed not only because it was an amazing object but also because it was a token or kind of a uh, a symbol of vanquishing this uh, Indian enemy. So for Chinese diplomats at the time, they would have they, there's no way that they could not have understood that as a as a sort of um, suggestion like this, you could be next. This is going to happen to you, um, especially since China was already being understood or ca- characterized as a lion or a tiger. So I go into a lot of detail about this particular stuff in the book, but the in a nutshell, it means that at the same time, the idea of the body as a mechanical object and as an organic object were starting to emerge or be explored in uh, Chinese intellectual context. There was also the introduction of this idea of a uh, a powerful mechanical body figure that could still be uh, vanquished by Western powers. And it, it sort of led to um, the uh, emergence of that very powerful metaphor of China as a sleeping lion that Yang Qichao used um, as, a, as, a, as a criticism of his countrymen. So it's a very long story, kind of a very philologically detailed, but kind of in a very nerdy way, just super exciting to track it down and find the source of that stereotype of that understanding of China as a sleeping lion and to understand that it was connected to Frankenstein and therefore connected to this idea of a body that was just the sum of its parts that you could disassemble just as easily as a, an empire could disassemble an existing uh, nation or Regime. Yeah, and you could see how these ideas ripple through the the coming decades in for the rest of your book. Um, so, in chapter two, you jump forward in time a bit uh, to discuss a novel and a story by Yu Hua, and then you also discuss the work of the Cadaver Group. Um, and between the two of these, you trace a shift in the way the body is perceived. So. Could you give us a sense of how Yu Hua depicts the human body in the works that you discuss? Yes, um, thank you for asking. I, I love Yu Hua's work, and have that was that's one of in the archaeology of this book. The work on Yu Hua is one of the earlier layers. It's something I've been thinking about since graduate school, and had developed in an earlier essay uh, a little, and then in this book got to expand in much greater detail. Um, something interesting about Yu Hua's work is that in, its er- in his earlier writing, such as the writing I examine in the book, 
he was um, more deliberately experimental and he really liked to push uh, form and content in different directions. So um, in the story that I look at, uh, one kind of reality, he, he tells the story of a couple of brothers who basically uh, engage in a kind of a, a battle resulting in the complete dissection of one of them. And the body of the story, the, the bulk of the story is the bit by bit detailed discussion of each individual part, how it was dissected and where it went. And in that sense is a fair commentary on what writing might mean. And something interesting about Yuha is that he also openly uh, connects his work to that of the great author Lu Xun. And something further of interest is that both Yuha and Lu Xun were unique writers because they both had some exposure to medical science before they became writers. Lu Xun's case is very famous um, that he studied medicine in Japan. And in Yuha's case, he actually had, he, he was doing dentistry for a while, but even before that, as a kid, he grew up uh, is, is with his parents in medical related fields. He actually grew up in morgues. He actually had access in the hot summer to these cool body storage areas where he, he would hang out and he's talked about, um, how that it was a nice refuge. And so I think his, his approach to bodies has been uh, very sanguine and you can see some of the ways that, that, that he used that, uh, that comfort with discussing the body in creating uncomfortable works of literature. So a shift that occurred, if you, if you look at the history of how cadavers were processed forensically and medicinally over the course of the 20th century in China, you see that Yuha entered at a very unique moment. He began to write at a, a kind of a, a gray zone, a unique moment that had never happened before and will never happen again when there was a kind of unique access to bodies. The access to them medically wasn't necessarily regulated as uh, specifically as it is today. Um, and he, um, it was also a time when the body was acquiring a kind of commodity value. So if you compare back to when Lucian was uh, finishing uh, his medical training. Uh, at that point, it was shocking just to be able to do any dissection at all, since uh, people in, in China weren't uh, typically allowed until 1913 uh, to practice uh, cadaver dissection. So it was uh, pretty pretty unique in the history of Chinese literature that Lu Xun, when he was in Japan, actually got to have his hands in a body. But at that point, the body itself hadn't yet acquired a kind of the commodity value that it has today. You couldn't actually sell individual parts. Of course, it originated in commodity value and, and grave robbing and so forth in order to, to find specimens. But on the whole, um, it wasn't the first thing you thought about with the body wasn't necessarily what can I transplant from it or to it or how much is that worth or where, is th where are things going to go. Whereas in Yuha, by the time that Yuha was writing, suddenly there were these blood scandals, uh, things where blood sellers were acquiring HIV. Um, and uh, he actually wound up writing a, this, the Chronicle of the Blood Merchant, which engages, if not with HIV, but with the idea of selling blood in the rural countryside to, to illustrate uh, some of the challenges of, of, of life and literature then. Uh, so I would say in my assessment, and I always want to know what other scholars think, but in, when I read Yuha, I read closely for anxiety or uh, interrogation of the idea of the body as having a commodity value. He seems almost obsessed with the body as having a money value. Um, and that's a shift. It's a shift historically and in literature where the body has gone from being a source of uh, 
obsession and fascination, maybe for sexual reasons or for erotic reasons or even for medical reasons, to something that has acquired a, a, an exchange value. And that exchange value is uh, is pretty unique to our moment. And tracing the entrance of the idea of the body as something that's commodifiable uh, really gives yields a lot of information about how it's circulating in the present day. So not so long after Yuha wrote that piece that I discussed, that's, it's not a coincidence to me historically that that's when the cadaver group started um, using cadaverous materials in their artworks as contemporary artists who somehow gained access to um, medical hospitals, teaching hospitals, and, uh, and, and uh, preserved specimens to, to use in their artworks. So historically speaking, that moment, say between 19, uh, 1980 and 2002, uh, it, it's something that'll never happen again. Uh, and now it's the much harder to get hold of these anatomical specimens. Artists won't do it for various reasons. So much has changed. But in that particular moment, there was a dialogue going on about uh, how the body could be made public, how it could stand to represent uh, the nation or individual artist's agenda. Um, and in the case of the artists as well, there was also the factor of uh, who was actually willing to buy their work. That's, at the time, they couldn't exhibit in China for very long. There'd be flash exhibits uh, that would be closed down right away. Uh, meanwhile, Collectors overseas were buying up their work, uh, you know, in great quantities. So there were a lot of contradictions going on around money and access there. So, yeah, so there's that shift in the body that happens somewhere between, you know, on the timeline going from Lu Xun to Yuhua to the cadaver artists uh, that you follow an arc of commodification that, um, that becomes more and more evident in artworks or literature that treat the body. So that notion of commodification also appears in movies. Um, and in chapter three, you turn to these as a, as a source for understanding. Why do you, th- what do you think movies in particular contribute for understanding biopolitical aesthetics? Thank you for asking. I, you know, it's, it's funny. So when I was working on the book, I was acutely aware that uh, in terms of the, the historical or archival topic of the Frankenstein automaton, and also in terms of writers like Yuha and the Cadaver Group, um, all of these these items, these objects of study, were fairly elite. Like they're not necessarily uh, popular media. So Yuha is an experimental writer at the time; his work was not necessarily uh, consumed by the masses, even though his later work became much more public facing. Um, and the same with the cadaver group, they were uh, really the exhibits were, although they were incredibly inf- influential, their work was only seen by a relative few um, and collected outside of China. So uh, something interesting about movies is that they are by nature uh, a popular form and can provide some information about how biopolitics is being screened or consumed uh, in in more popular media. So the examples I chose uh were, both, were all examples that involved some kind of organ transplant in some way. Uh, and and I, this, of course, would not be a, a documentary film about how organ transplants are actually done, but rather uh, fictional narratives about how they're perceived. And that perception of organ transplant will tell us a lot about how people conceive of the wholeness of their own body or the permeability of its boundaries or whether it can cross boundaries nationally or culturally or racially. Um, and that's the biopolitics. That's where biopolitical aesthetics comes in. That uh, if biopolitics is looking at political economies, um, but also the uh, 
the political economies of biology itself or think of the life sciences, then movies can give us some insight into what cultural understandings or popular cultural understandings of those political economies might look like. So um, one of the case studies I describe is that film by uh, Chen Guo, uh, Fruit Chan, called Made in Hong Kong, which is an indie movie, but a movie that nonetheless had pretty, was pretty successful and features kidney transplant as one of the subplots. And of course, it's really easy to make a snap reading of the film as being a film about anxiety of, about the, the looming handover uh, of Hong Kong since it was made right around then. Uh, but on a deeper level, it's also uh, really interesting to look at what kinds of um, what kinds of transplant or what kinds of kidney transplant were actually possible at that time in Hong Kong, and which ones did the government support, and which kinds could people uh, be eligible for, depending on their class or financial status. Um, and when you start to juxtapose the portrayal of kidney transplant in the film with what was actually going on in Hong Kong at the time around kidney donation, then you start to see something really interesting emerge, which is a conflict about class, where a certain groups of people uh, have less access. And of course, access to transplant kidneys is always challenging. Uh, but what often comes to the surface is uh, the financial or economic or class basis of transplant. So when you look at that factor, when you factor that into Chen Guo's movie, you start to see that his movie is not just anxiety about the handover, but more specifically, it's really talking about uh, class differences and access to healthcare and anxieties about what will happen to an already problematic system when another problematic system comes to replace it for all of those people who are not normally represented uh, by government or in the in or mainstream political economics. And then by the same token, um, so his film, it's, you know, he's an indie director. He's uh, more deliberately intellectual in his framing of things. You wouldn't necessarily expect all of this type of analysis to apply to a more pop mainstream movie, and yet it does. And so one of uh, my favorite movies is The Eye, um, which is which I, um, which I analyze at length in the book. And that was kind of a horror or a thriller movie in the uh, – J-pop and the K-par, the Japanese and Korean horror film traditions, um, that uses corneal transplant as its uh, as its object, and it's just so fascinating to trace the movement of this haunted cornea from our heroine uh, back to its origin point of uh, someone else who who lived and died in in Thailand, and to start then to trace what the movie is actually saying about transnational flows of information, of body parts, of money of understandings of race, it starts to get very deep very quickly in spite of being a, a mainstream pop movie. So I just find things like that deeply fascinating. And again, it could kind of, you can never tell how people receive it apart from what they say or write or publish. Um, but there's something there that makes the film uh, speak to really profound anxieties, both about the integrity of your own individual body, but also about the dilution of identity in a transnational context uh, originating in Hong Kong. And that, that chapter also adds Hong Kong into the mix so that the, 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 uh, the book aims to treat both a little of material from mainland China, a little from the historical past, uh, a little from contemporary uh, contexts and from Hong Kong and also from Taiwan. So I tried to not limit myself to one region, uh, but rather to organize things together by theme.
Right. So you've mentioned the idea in the, the context of these movies of transnational flows. And I think you could really see this in chapter four, which is where you take up the body world's uh, exhibits and other similar exhibits of these plastinated cadavers. Um, can you begin by taking us through how these exhibits came to be? Yeah. So these are fascinating exhibits. And I I don't know whether it's a sign of me being an, uh, a little bit unusual, but I've managed to um, to visit exhibits, the Body World's exhibits across the world for almost 15 years now. Uh, I probably have been to about 10 different shows. And for those, for anyone who doesn't know, um, those are the exhibits of plastinated human cadavers that are uh, portrayed in kind of life-size dioramas and meant, or at least marketed, to illustrate anatomical fun- form and function. And they're they're pretty sh- they're pretty shocking to see in person. So often they lack the outer layer of skin that's been removed so that you can see the workings of the muscles, which have all been uh, rendered. Uh, immobile or just absolutely preserved in uh, using a plastic kind of fossil-like resin reduction process. And they, uh, in fact, have reached so many millions of people around the world, these exhibits, that if you haven't seen one, you're kind of the exception to the rule. And in that way, they just have such incredible, sheer numeric power over how the world might in popular science context, think of human anatomy. So um, they came to be, they can be, even in spite of that, uh, how popular they are, they're still very confusing to people because they have different, uh, they're made in different by different organizations. And typically there's some confusion about who made which one and which one was the first one. And uh, the most famous uh, person associated with the technology that led to the plasmated cadaver exhibits was Gunther von Hagen's who I think you could, it's safe to say that he invented it or at least perfected the technology of plastination and then sought to make his mark to establish, even to the point of uh, bringing copyright suits, uh, to establish that he was the originator of, of this technology. But as it happens, especially early on in his production process, he engaged a Chinese manufacturer with whom he partnered for a long time. And they had a falling out. And when they separated, when they parted ways, the Chinese manufacturer also began to produce plastinated cadavers, uh, both for popular science exhibits, but also for medical museums and medical uh, teaching colleges and so forth. And then from there, the technology started to uh, spread around. So there are actually uh, even universities in the United States that use their own plastination facilities to um, to preserve body parts that they can use in teaching. So when you see a plastinated cadaver exhibit in terms of how it came to be, you you have to do a little detective work to find out, is it one of these original ones done by Von Hagens, which tend to be have higher production value? Um, or is it one of the ones that originates from mainland China, which tend to have kind of come together more quickly? Um, or is it something else? And then complicating matters even further is that when the exhibits were first starting to circulate in earnest in the late 90s, uh, there was a lot of controversy that accompanied them, suggesting that the bodies they uh, were exhibiting belonged originally to executed Chinese prisoners. And that created enough controversy, controversy that some of the shows were actually shut down, uh, for example, in Paris and elsewhere. Um, but the the truth behind all of that was and still is very hard to identify, um, partly because uh, 
something we tend to view as a good thing is that the anonymity of a, a donor of a, of a body for anatomical purposes is, is meant to always be preserved at all costs. And while that may be a good thing, it also means it's really hard to get to the bottom of which bodies are the source or the actual source of the exhibits. So something that a lot of, that I've, when I was researching this uh, chapter, I wound up looking a lot at popular reception at reading uh, newspapers in, uh, in, uh, in Chinese from Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, and mainland China to try and understand what people thought when going into the show. What, what did they understand about the bodies already? And what did they think once they saw them? And how did that compare to how people received them in, the, in Western countries? And was there any debate about whether they originated uh, with Chinese prisoners? And it turns out that it's all just a big mishmash. It's very confusing to, to identify. Uh, and and that, that confusion, in fact, helps generate revenue uh, by leaving some unanswered questions. Uh, in the Chinese language reception of the exhibits, I found surprisingly little attention to um, that particular controversy, but rather controversies over whether it was appropriate to display sexuality or pregnant women, um, or whether uh, it was appropriate to use bodies in this way, or should those only be restricted to medical schools? And those debates you could find all over the world, but um, debates about uh, um, the origin point were a little bit harder to find for various reasons. And so then complicating things even further, uh, especially coming from Western perspectives, is that when we go when we attend one of these exhibits, um, lacking the skin and lacking any information about the identity of the bodies, the donors, et cetera, we're really forced to rely on other information to kind of extrapolate or guess who are these bodies? Where did they come from? And were they in fact the product of, uh, of unethical executions and so forth of, of execution? And that means that, uh, in my study, I, I saw again and again, uh, including informally when I was, uh, eavesdropping essentially at exhibits around the world that um, people go into an exhibit and scrutinize the bodies, not just for anatomical information, but for racial information. They speculate, Oh, I think that body looks Chinese. Oh, that's clearly a, you know, a Chinese male you can tell. And people will speculate about other racial phenomena when, when without access to the skin, they start to kind of force connections in other ways. So the bodies turn out to have a really interesting uh, role in, uh, in, spreading information or misinformation about uh, race and culture, how bodies are used, whether or not human rights are violated. So that even something like a human rights discourse, which seems inviolable on the surface, actually turns out to be really complicated and often uh, not as straightforward as we'd like to think. Right. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how you read these exhibits in the context of the other examples you discuss in the book. Um, so the, yeah, that's a really good question. Well, again, with the, uh, the way the, the book wound up taking shape, it starts with the historical backdrop to the idea of thinking of the body as something that's separate from the mind in these particular contexts or something that's separatable and then ultimately commodifiable. So it starts with the historical example and then it proceeds to discussion of Yuha and the cadaver group, which, as I mentioned, are because of their reception and the nature of their work tend to be kind of limited in who they reach to discussing movies, which reach a much broader audience because they're by nature uh, objects of popular culture to then the body worlds exhibits, which in the context of my book represent the most uh, well-circulated, I mean, 
60 million viewers or some incredible number increasing every year, uh, the most well circulated in the world. And so as uh, exhibits that are marketed and often understood as purely anatomical, as pure science in a popular form, it's really important to understand what they're also saying or suggesting about China, Chinese culture, about race in context outside of China, especially in the world market now that wants to homogenize and vilify uh, without fully understanding the complexities of uh, Chinese markets. So the Body Worlds exhibits as an object of study fits into the book as sort of the, the uh, ultimate example of an aesthetic object with a vast circulation range uh, that brings with it uh, in the name of pure science and anatomical science, all of this cultural baggage uh, that includes the legacies of colonialism and racism that doesn't have enough, where there, there's very hard to find space to discuss it uh, or to really examine where it came from. Um, so one of the things that struck me about the, the Body Worlds exhibits as I developed the research over the years was uh, reading Lisa Lowe's work um, in, in her book, The Intimacies of Four Continents, where she describes the interconnectedness of the financial systems that led to the exploitation of coolie labor uh, in the Americas and beyond. And I was thinking how even though uh, those, the circulations that produced uh, coolie labor happened a couple of hundred years earlier than the Body Worlds exhibits, they still, um, the, the formula, the cycle, the pattern was very similar, almost identical. Um, and that there's something in historical uh, patterning that was re recurring and that in uh, Lisa Lowe's uh, way of understanding it, it was deeply embedded in uh, transnational and colonial networks uh, of exchange. So why would I not look at the Body Worlds exhibit as a contemporary example of those very networks? When I look at it from that financial angle, which basically essentially boils down to where's the money, <laughs> then when you start to look for where's the money in these situations, it, it, all signs point back to uh, profit margins, uh, biopolitical economics, um, and ways that profit can be made on different bodies. And then the question comes up again, of whose bodies? Whose bodies are being profited from? Uh, who is profiting from them? And what are people being led to believe about, uh, for example, Chinese race uh, when they see an exhibit like this? So in the epilogue to your book, you know, thinking about sort of, you've made the point that these body worlds exhibits have been seen worldwide. Um, and so in the epilogue, you introduce the example of the terracotta warriors, um, which is perhaps another exhibit of bodies of a sort that has also had this really wide world, uh, world encompassing circulation. Can you tell us a little bit about what we might learn from that comparison? Yes, definitely. It's, it was it was so interesting for me to learn. As I, although I had seen many uh, Body Worlds exhibits, I had not actually seen many exhibits of the Terracotta Warriors. I'd just seen one. And uh, so it was interesting to me to learn that, in fact, uh, the exhibits, these circulating exhibits of Terracotta Warriors are, if not the, then one of the most uh, successful exhibits of all time. And therefore, they share, they have that in common with the Body Worlds exhibits, but they also have in common this connection to Chinese bodies that they somehow originated in China. And that, uh, that there's something about the objecthood of them that also uh, resonates. So when we look at a plastinated cadaver, one of the questions that comes up for many people around the world is, are they real? Um, how much of them is left that's organic? And should we even consider them a body? Or are they simply a very detailed plastic model? 
and that really changes how you understand that question, changes the way you view the exhibit. And to give an, a very concrete example of one way that that, that that question of whether it's real or not can affect things is um, that every country that, uh, in every country where the body worlds are exhibited, the, the specimens themselves have to pass through customs. And each country has different laws that uh, decide whether the specimens count as organic matter for the purpose of customs or whether they count as plastinate models. So in the case of Australia, for example, um, some of them, at least in one case that I looked at, the customs decided, well, they're not uh, actually biological. They're, they're more specimens than uh, biohazard, for example. And so they're allowed in. But those same questions that are addressed at, at customs also are addressed by individual viewers. Now, for the terracotta warriors, I don't think anybody looks at them and thinks, oh, those are real. We know that they're not. And yet they're subject to a lot of the same concerns. They're um, considered these kind of exemplars, these representations of Chinese culture. They are considered uh, to be uh, kind of man-made or constructed, and they're very popular. And interestingly enough, they've also been uh, subjected to these accusations of copyright violation or intellectual property violation when when in various cases it was discovered that really lovely, well-done replicas were on display and not these so-called, the quote-unquote, original terracotta warriors. And that's uh, another area where I was curious to, to think that if we start, if we take the side of customs and start to look at the fascinated bodies, not as human remains, but as uh, objects, then they really have very mu- a huge amount in common with the terracotta warriors. They're no longer... Um, organic, but they are Chinese bodies circulating for the viewing pleasure of the world uh, and also being subjected to accusations about their origin, about their uh, value as um, as authentic commodities and so forth, and objects about which it's very hard to understand, uh, or very hard to get to the bottom of whether they're authentic or not. So the terracotta warriors provide a kind of uh, counterpoint example uh, at the other end of the extreme. So without the shock value of a biological material, you can sort of with that to one side, you can look at pure standing alone. You can look at uh, what the circulation dynamics are of an art object that is the Chinese body that's circulating to make and making money and, and bringing with it all kinds of ideas about what Chinese culture means in the world. Thank you again for listening. This has been New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. <laughs>